Hello, and welcome to World of Warbirds. I'm Brian Pierce. I know you might be busy right now. Maybe you're driving a truck, or listening while commuting to work. Maybe you're walking the dog, or even trimming your roses. But whenever you get to where you're going, please go to PayPal at WOWB17 and send me some support. Honestly, now that I'm monetized on YouTube and am generating some revenue there, I have to justify still maintaining the audio version. So please, if you haven't already, help me out. And to all that have, thank you. Alright, so I'm always telling folks that I'm saving the more popular warbirds for later. Well, today we release one of those very popular warbirds. And the main reason is that over the summer, I listened to the audiobook Operation Vengeance, Killing Admiral Yamamoto by Edgar Walston. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and highly recommend it. And it has convinced me that it was time to look at this one-of-a-kind American fighter. Once I started digging, it was hard to stop. This aircraft, so famous and infamous and deadly, both to the enemy and sometimes to its own pilots, was such a rich topic that it ended up being a three-parter. I hope you enjoy them. Design and Development So if you know anything at all about the P-38, you're probably expecting me to start talking about Kelly Johnson right now. But just hold your horses, we are not there yet. First I have to talk about Benjamin S. Kelsey, because without him, there might not have even been the request for an airplane such as the P-38. I bet a bunch of you are saying, now who in the hell is that? And you would be justified. I'm going to be honest with you. Until I started research for this episode, I'd never heard of Benjamin S. Kelsey either. And I've been obsessing over Warbirds since I could read. And that's a shame because he just happens to be one of those, in quotes, working in the background types, close quotes, that allows so much to actually happen. Kelsey was born in Connecticut in 1906, and at the age of 15, he became a pilot. Not just a stick-and-rudder guy, he earned his Bachelor of Science degree in Mechanical Engineering from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT. After graduating, he stuck around to teach and do research. A real Renaissance man, he was even a bit of a writer, penning, in quotes, a study in cams as applied to the main driving member in reciprocating engines, close quotes. Sounds like a bestseller, eh? Oh, let's see if we can get it from Amazon Books. Well, it's not there. <laughs> he joined the United States Army Air Corps and received his commission in 1929. Okay, okay, I can hear you all asking out there what he has to do with the P-38. In 1939, 2nd Lieutenant Kelsey was transferred to Dayton, Ohio to Materiel Command at Wright Field. Here he was the fighter project officer. Thus, he was the guy responsible for looking into Air Corps fighter development and spent a lot of time interacting with various aircraft manufacturers with their inquiries and proposals. One company he was working closely with was the Allison Engine Company, which was working hard to develop a liquid-cooled engine that could be used in fighters. 
not just a pencil pusher, in 1936 and 1937, Kelsey flight tested their engine, the 12-cylinder V1710C6, up to 26,000 feet, and this without turbo supercharging. Kelsey thought that they had a crackerjack of an engine, which would be great for future American fighter aircraft. But this is where Kelsey ran into a bureaucratic wall. The United States Air Corps had restrictions on their fighters, which they called pursuit aircraft, hence the P designations, which limited the weight of the guns and ammo to 500 pounds. Now, guns and ammo are heavy, so that isn't very much, and Kelsey thought that much, much more firepower would be needed in a future conflict. So rather than try to fight or change the Army regulations, Kelsey did this judo move, and he and Lieutenant Gordon B. Saville came up with a whole new class of high-altitude fighters, not bound by the archaic Army regulations, called interceptors. They wrote up two specifications in 1937. One was for a single-engine interceptor, and one was for a twin-engine interceptor. The specification circulars stated that the Allison V1710 engines with General Electric turbo superchargers had to be used, and the interceptors had to have tricycle landing gear. Speed was to be 360 miles per hour, that's 580 kilometers per hour performance, without sacrificing long range and the ability to climb to 20,000 feet in six minutes. Armament was to include a cannon. It was from these requirements that we get the P-39 Era Cobra and the subject of this show. Now, if you haven't listened to the Era Cobra and King Cobra episodes, why are you denying yourself? Now we get to switch and finally start talking about Kelly Johnson. Clarence Leonard Kelly Johnson was born on February 27, 1910 and he and his parents lived in a remote mining town in Michigan. Like so many of our aviation heroes, Johnson was infected by the aviation bug Young when at the age of 13 he won a prize for airplane design. Kelly wasn't his first nickname. Some of his classmates in grade school called him Clara because of his first name, Clarence. He didn't like it. In fact, he liked it so little that one day he tripped one of his tormentors and the guy broke his leg. The schoolmates decided that Clara had to go and the nickname was replaced by Kelly after the character in a popular song at the time called Kelly from the Emerald Isle. Now the modern listeners may say, wait a minute, that's not any better. They just exchange one girl's name for another. I thought the same thing when I first read about Kelly Johnson because I went to school with a Kelly Johnson and she is quite feminine, although she can swear like a sailor. But I've since learned that prior to the 1960s, Kelly was primarily a man's name, so the bullies in Johnson's class were paying him a compliment with the new moniker. While still in university, Johnson was involved in helping to do wind tunnel testing of Lockheed's new Model 10 airliner. Johnson thought that there was something wrong with the new aircraft's stability, but he wasn't listened to by his professor. 
After finishing his master's, Johnson actually got a low-level job at Lockheed as a tool designer. I don't know what the company culture was at Lockheed at the time, but even if it was encouraging of criticism or whistleblowing, it would still take a basket full of guts for Johnson, a kid just out of school at the bottom of the totem pole, to approach the company's chief engineer, Hal Hibbert, and tell him that there is something wrong with his brand new airplane. But that's what he did. And he convinced Hibbert to let him do more testing in the wind tunnel. And Johnson came back with ideas to fix the stability issues, including adding an H-tail instead of the previously designed single fin. The suggestions were accepted. The Model 10 Electra went on to be a massive success. And the folks at Lockheed had noticed the Wunderkind in their midst. Johnson was moved up to the post of aeronautical engineer. When the specifications for the Interceptor fighter came out in 1937, Lockheed split off a secret team to work specifically on the twin-engined project. This elite group of engineers would later be known as the Skunk Works, but in the early days it had the much more boring name of Lockheed Advanced Development Projects. They looked at all kinds of configurations to build a twin-engine fighter. There was one that looked like what the twin Mustang would be. There was a centerline thrust pusher-puller idea like the future Dornier DO-335. And another with the pusher-puller configuration attached to twin tails like the P-38 would eventually have. If you look at all the options they considered, none of them really look any more or less strange than the one that, in the end, they settled on. This was to have the twin booms support the tail assembly, the engines, and the turbo superchargers. A central pod, or nacelle, would house the pilot and the armament. Putting all the guns and cannons in the nose was seen as a bonus, because unlike planes with wing-mounted guns, the bullet streams could come straight out, like laser beams, instead of being set to converge at a certain distance. That meant that pilots with good aim would be able to hit targets at any range within the capability of the gun, rather than limited by the convergence zone of the fire of the wing-mounted guns. Lockheed called their proposal the Model 22, but once they won the competition on the 23rd of June 1937, the name was changed, and they were given $163,000 to build a prototype called the XP-38. Prototypes. In order to satisfy the original specification, the XP-38 included a tricycle undercarriage, which was also unusual for fighter aircraft of the time period. It had bubble canopy for good all-around visibility, and of course included the two 1,000-horsepower turbo-supercharged 12-cylinder Allison V1710 engines that had kicked off the Ben Kelsey specification. Oh, you thought we were done with him? No way. The engines had counter-rotating propellers to eliminate the effect of engine torque. The former ground school instructor in me is saying that perhaps I should take a moment to explain this. As an engine spins a propeller, Sir Isaac Newton tells us that the propeller is equally trying to twist back the engine, which of course is 
bolted to the airframe. And so the whole airplane is being twisted. This even occurs with my pokey Cessna 172, requiring a little right rudder to keep the ball in the turn and bank instrument in the middle. Imagine the forces involved in an engine with 1,000 horsepower, and now we're talking about a dangerous situation, especially with green pilots. By having two engines turning two counter-rotating propellers, you counteract the force completely. Having right-hand and left-hand engines was relatively easy with the V1710 engine, which was designed with this in mind from the get-go. To make the engine turn the other way, all that was needed to be done was to turn the crankshaft end for end, install an idler gear in the drivetrain to the supercharger, camshafts and accessories, put in a starter motor turning in the new direction, and rearrange the ignition wiring to allow a changed firing order. The oil pump and coolant pump circuits didn't need changing at all. The turbochargers were positioned behind the engines with the exhaust dumping along the dorsal surfaces of the booms. In order to make the fighter extra slippery and thus faster, flush mounted aluminum skin panels were used. The XP-38 first flew on the 27th of January 1939 and guess who was flying it? Yep, Ben Kelsey. It wasn't a smooth flight which could be seen as foreshadowing for the entire program. Kelsey experienced a good deal of vibration on this flight, which was attributed to tail flutter, which is what it sounds like. The tail starts to flutter in the airstream, causing the aircraft to shake. But it seems that the tail flutter problem wasn't bad enough to ground the aircraft. Au contraire, only a month later, in February, it was decided to move the aircraft from sunny California to Wright Field, Ohio, for continued testing. Then, someone decided that it would be a good idea to take this new, fairly untested aircraft that was already having some issues and try to break Howard Hughes' H1 racer speed record for a coast-to-coast -coast flight. And guess who was going to make this flight? Yeah, you guessed it. 2nd Lieutenant Kelsey. On the 11th of February, Kelsey took off from Marchfield, California and headed east. The flight was fairly uneventful, with Kelsey not even straining the engines and taking advantage of an obliging tailwind. At the last refueling stop in Dayton, Ohio, Kelsey was met by none other than General Henry Hap Arnold, the commander of the entire USAAC. The general told him, don't spare the horses on the last leg, meaning push it to break the Hughes record. Things were looking good until the controller at the Mitchell Field Tower put Kelsey and his XP-38 into a landing sequence beside other, slower aircraft. If the controller knew that this was a record-breaking flight, it was kind of a dick move. But I don't know if he knew it or not. But what did happen was that the Ellison engines picked up ice in the carburetor and one engine died, and then the other. Kelsey bellied the new prototype in, just short of the Mitchell runway. The airplane was wrecked, and they hadn't even broken the record. The Hughes record still had them beat by 17 minutes. This seemed like a disaster, 
$163,000 of government money was gone. Plus, Lockheed had put an additional $600,000 of company money into the program. That was a lot of money in pre-war 1930s America. But things were not as bad as they would seem. The Air Corps had been so impressed by the prototype that they ordered another 13 aircraft. These called YP-38s. The Y meant that the aircraft was no longer experimental, but in a service testing phase. Heck, even Kelsey got promoted to captain. Next time on World of Warbirds, we will look at the serious contradictions of the P-38 in a section called Production and Problems. Until next time.